This is Dr. Daryl Tate, pastor at the Highland Park Baptist Church. I want to thank you for worshiping with us today. To listen to this message in its entirety, you can go to our webpage at highlandparkfamily.com. And if you are in the Mount Airy area, certainly come by. Worship with us anytime on the Lord's Day. God bless you. Please take your copy of God's Word. Join me today in the book of 2 Kings, the 11th chapter. 2 Kings chapter 11. We've been in Kings for quite a while now, other than we've taken uh, a time or two for a break in the holidays and different things. But today we're back in, in uh, 2 Kings 11, and I want to speak to you this morning a message entitled, God Keeps His Promises. God keeps His promises. Listen, if you don't hear anything I say in this sermon, I want you to hear uh, these words today, that whatever God says, He is faithful to do what He says. He is, the Bible says he is not slack concerning his promises, meaning that he is not unable to do what he has promised to do because circumstances change, because seasons change, because years change, generations change. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And he promises us that whatever he has promised will indeed come to pass. So today we're going to look at a very obscure passage from uh, uh, 2 Kings 11. In fact, most of the passages in Kings. Obscure. It's not a, uh, a book that we frequent very often, but there are some rich, rich treasures here. And I'm so excited about preaching this today that I just couldn't hardly wait to get here this morning. Back at Kings chapter 11, let me introduce this to you by reading just the opening few passages. 2 Kings 11.1, 1, And when Athaliah, the mother of Ahaziah, saw that her son was dead, she arose and destroyed all of the royal seed. But Jehoshaphat, the daughter of the sister of Ahaziah, took Josiah, the son of Ahaziah, and stole him from among the king's sons which were slain. And she hid him, and they hid him and his nurse in the bedchamber from Athaliah, so that he was not slain. And he was with her in the house of the Lord six years, and Athaliah did reign over the land. So may God add his blessings today as we look at God keeps his promises. Let me go back, refresh your memory just briefly over where we are in the trace of the historicity of the nation of Israel. After the death of King Solomon, you'll recall that Israel had a civil war. After they had moved into this land flowing with milk and honey, these 12 tribes of Israel had their own internal conflicts that led to a civil war and a split within the nation. We'll put a map up on the screen for you this morning to help orient you as to what the nation looked like in those days. You will see the green is uh, made up of, or it was made up of in the Bible days, uh, 10 tribes to the north. 10 tribes of the 12 were in the northern section, made up the northern kingdom called Israel, and Samaria was the capital city. In the south, in the orange part there, that is the southern kingdom of the divided nation of Israel, made up of the tribes of Benjamin, and uh, Judah, and that kingdom was known as the kingdom of Judah, and its capital city was the city of Jerusalem. I tell you that because throughout this time, when you reach 2 Kings chapter 11, about a hundred years has passed in the reigning monarchy of Israel's history. And when you read the book of Kings, sometimes the text talks about 
a king who will be the king in the north, although it may not say the king of the northern kingdom. It'll just give you his name. Or if it's talking about a king in the south, it'll just give you his name. And it, you may not know that he's from the south until you research that and, uh, and have an understanding. So if you're not familiar with the names, you're not going to know who is in the north and who is in the, ca- in the south and which events are taking place in the north, which events are taking place in the south. And reading through the book of Kings is probably not going to make a great deal of sense to you. But by the time you reach chapter 11, the monarchy is about a hundred years old. And we have looked at some of these kings and we've looked at some of the prophets that spoke to these kings during this time. For example, we've looked at Elijah and then his successor was Elisha. This morning, I want to introduce to you two new characters. We've not seen them on the pages of scripture before. It is a mother and her son. Her name is Athaliah, according to verse 1, and her son's name is Ahaziah, according to verse number 1. Now again, we don't know a great deal about the son Ahaziah, but this is what we do know. He became the king in the southern part of Judah. Let me back up for just a moment. His mother, Athaliah, was married to the king of Judah, all right? who was a, happened to be a descendant of King David. She wasn't, but her husband was. Her mother and father were Ahab and Jezebel, who were king and queen of the north. Well, when Athaliah's husband, the king of the south, dies, her son, Ahaziah, takes the throne. He's 22 years old. And he has a very short reign as king. In fact, he only reigns for one year. If you read his resume, chapter 8 of Second Kings tells us uh, when he started to reign or that he began to reign as king. Chapter 9 gives us the date that he began to reign. And then all the way in Second Chronicles 22, we're given the scripture that talks about his death. So he had a very brief reign, only a year. So here's what happened when he died. When Ahaziah, is that the north or the south? South. You guys are listening, right? When Ahaziah died, his mother, Athaliah, who lived where? North or south? South. Decided that she was not going to let any of the heirs that came through the line of her husband, that came through the lineage of King David, she decided, since she was a descendant of Ahab and Jezebel, who were king and queen of where? The north, man, I love this, don't y'all? All right, so she decides that she's not going to allow any of the heirs of King David to take the throne. So Athaliah, even though she's not a descendant of King David, she decides that she's going to take the throne and she takes it by force and she issues a decree that all of the lineage of King David is to be exterminated. Now that's quite a bold, uh, spine-tingling edict, if you will, that everybody related to King David. So she would never have anybody that would be a threat to the throne. She's going to have them exterminated. She's going to have them killed. Well, as she does that, when you read this text, immediately, if you know anything about biblical history, you know God made a promise. God made a promise that through the lineage of King David, it would be a, a continual lineage, an eternal lineage, if you will, and that there would be a king who would come through the lineage of King David one of these days who would sit on the throne in Jerusalem, north or south? 
south in Jerusalem, and he would rule and reign forever and forever and forever and forever. But lo and behold, when you come to chapter 11, here is Queen Athaliah who is determined to stop that. So God makes a promise that there will be an eternal king on an eternal throne. Athaliah is going to stop that. And for the first time, you know what you're going to see in this text? For the first time in all of the history of the kings, someone outside the family of David is on the throne. And it appears as though that God was not able to keep his promise when he said that there would be an unbroken lineage from David all the way to whom we now know is the Lord Jesus Christ who one day will come as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So let's unpack it for just a moment. Three things I want to give you very quickly as we move through this. First of all, I want you to jot down the promise threatened. God made a promise. The lineage of David will rule and reign forever, but it was threatened in that it was not or did not appear to be coming true. Notice verse 1. When Athaliah, the mother of Ahaziah, saw that her son was dead. Remember, he was the king of the south. When she saw that he was dead, she arose and destroyed all of the royal seed, meaning she goes on a killing spree, and if you were related to King David, you had a bounty on your head. She killed everybody in the line of King David. Now remember, her husband was from that royal line. She married into that. But since Jezebel and Ahab were the kings of the north, she was, and that was her parents, she wanted to bring the the personification of evil, Ahab and Jezebel, their influence from the north down to the south, and she was going to rule Israel, Israel proper, in this case Judah, to, to walk away from God. She was a terrible, terrible lady. She was one of the most wicked women whom the Bible uh, speaks about. So she reigns this reign of terror, exterminating all the Jewish men and all of the Jewish ladies that were part of the descendants of David. And because her husband, who has now deceased, was a descendant of David, his son, who was the king, has now been deceased. He was a descendant of David. She's got grandchildren, for heaven's sakes, who are descendants of David. And she even has her grandkids exterminated. Now, you'd have to be a cold-hearted person to have anybody exterminate, especially your children, your grandchildren. I have three grandchildren. You've heard the old saying, if I knew they were going to be this much fun, I would have had them first, right? So grandkids are special. But here was a woman who was so vile, she was going to have everybody, even in her own family, killed in order to protect her throne. Why is that significant? Hold your place. I want you to back up to the book of 2 Samuel for a moment and look with me in verse number um, 8 of chapter 7. 2 Samuel chapter 7. I want you to look at God's promise that he makes to King David that there would always be somebody from the lineage of David who would be an eternal king. So 2 Samuel chapter 7 verse 8. Just let me read you this. It's a covenant that God makes with David. God sends Nathan the prophet to David, and he says, Now therefore, so shall you say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the sheep coat, from following the sheep, to be the ruler over my people Israel. I was with you wherever you went. I have cut off the, all of the enemies out of your sight, and I have made you a great name like the name of great men that are in the earth. 
Moreover, I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them that they may dwell in a place of their own and move no more. Neither shall the children of wickedness afflict them any more as before time. And as since the time that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel, I have caused you to rest from all of your enemies. In other words, he says, David, I've given you peace as king. And the Lord tells you that he will make you a house. And when the days are fulfilled and you shall sleep with your fathers, in other words, when you die, God says, I will set up your seed after you, which shall proceed out of your bowels. I will establish his kingdom, build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom. What's that word say? Forever. But here's Athaliah in chapter 11, who already seems like she has broken that when she exterminated David's family. Go down to verse number Verse number 15, but my mercy shall not depart away from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before thee. And your house and the kingdom shall be established. What's that word? Forever before thee. And your throne shall be established. What's that word? Forever. According to all of these words, according to all this vision, so did Nathan speak to David. Now you can go back to 2 Kings 11. So God makes this covenant with David. And he says, I'm going to bless your family. And you're going to have a king on the throne, an unbroken lineage that will rule and reign forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever. And then that begs the question when you come to chapter 11. Athaliah is going to see to it that all the descendants of David are killed. Thwarting God's promise to his people. God said in Genesis that the scepter would not depart from Judah, meaning there would be a king that would come from that southern kingdom. Isaiah 11, there would come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse. Jesse was David's dad, meaning that through Jesse and then David would branch off the line of the Messiah, who would be the Lord Jesus Christ. Jeremiah 33, thus says the Lord, David will never lack a man to sit upon the throne of your house of Israel. Now let's take a breath right there because that's a lot. You say, Pastor Darrell, here we are in 2023. What in the world does this story have to do with me? Here I am, I'm raising children, and I'm paying $6 for a dozen of eggs. What does Athaliah and Ahaziah and all these people have to do with me? Here we are, I'm dealing with inflation and interest rates are uh, high and things seem to be uncertain with the war in Ukraine and Russia. There's a lot of uncertainty in life and I'm just trying to put food on my table and buy tennis shoes for my kids and get their school pictures taken care of and deal with all the financial stuff that, that is piling up on me. What in heaven's name are you doing taking my hour of worship on a Sunday morning and telling me an obscure passage in 2 Kings that appears to have nothing to do with me? Well, I'm glad you asked. Because, listen, it probably, not probably, it definitely has more to do with us than what you may realize when you first read it. Because what you see here is if Athaliah is successful in exterminating the lineage of David, 
and there's not a descendant from David who will take the throne, then that means that God can't keep his promises because he's made that promise all through the Old Testament. And if God can't keep his promises to them, that means we can't trust God with the promises that he's made to us today. That means that God would be either untruthful to make a promise or he would be incapable of keeping the promise, which means you and I would not have a guarantee of eternity. We would not have a guarantee of salvation. And all of this is just a big smoking crater of nothing with no significance at all if God's not able to keep his promise. So you see in this story, there is a promise that is threatened. That Athaliah is going to try her best to prevent this seed, this royal line, from ever continuing past her dead son, Ahaziah. Look what she says in verse 1 of what the text says. She arose, she destroyed all of the royal seed. If you carry the King James, you see that word seed there. Some translations use the word offspring. Some translations use the word family heirs. But it really is a reference that goes all the way back to Genesis 3.15 when God made the first promise to Adam and Eve when they sinned in the Garden of Eden. You remember this, it's called the Proto-Evangelion, that God said to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden... After they had sinned, after they had fallen, God said to, to, the, to the devil, to the serpent, he says that there will come one, one of these days, through the seed of the woman. Now, the woman doesn't have the seed. The man has the seed, meaning it's already a picture that God would be his father. But nonetheless, he says, through the seed of the woman, there would come one who would crush the head of Satan. And if you trace that through the scripture, the one who would crush Satan's head would come through this royal line of King David. Athaliah was determined to make sure that that would never, ever happen. So when her son passed off the scene, she takes the reins of leadership on the throne of the southern kingdom of Judah, and she wipes out all of David's family. And it just seems as though that God has been unable to keep his promise. It was more than just an attack on David's lineage. It was actually an attack on the seed or the offspring of the woman that would come and eventually be the Lord Jesus Christ. Warren Wiersbe says this, The seed of Satan is trying to exterminate the seed of God. You see that same pattern throughout Scripture. Write this down, go back and look at it later because, it's, again, it's another obscure passage. It's Exodus chapter 1. In Exodus chapter 1, there are two midwives. Two midwives, their name are Shipporah and Puah. The only time you see them mentioned in the Bible, the king of Egypt says to these two midwives, when the Hebrew ladies have children, I want you to kill their male babies. Really, the thought was to stop this promised seed from coming who would eventually throw through, flow through David. Fortunately, these two midwives, rather than being pro-death, they were pro-life, and they did not kill those male babies. In hopes of trying to destroy Moses before he would ever become the deliverer of Egypt, of, uh, of the, the, the Hebrews who are in Egyptian bondage, Pharaoh issued a decree that all the male babies be taken from their mother's arms and thrown into the alligator-infested waters of the Nile River. Do you remember that scene? And in a culture of death, Pharaoh was pro-death. The culture at that time was pro-death. Take your child, throw him into the, into the waters of the, of, the, of the Nile. A young family, Amram and Jochebed, who were the parents of Moses, 
even though they were living in that culture of death, say, we're pro-life. And they take Moses, and instead of throwing him into the Nile, they put him in a basket that they have made out of bulrush, and they, they cover the inside with tar, the outside with tar to make it waterproof, and they put the greatest treasure of life, their baby boy Moses, in that basket, and they float him down the river trying to preserve his life. Fortunately, Moses' sister Miriam, who was also pro-life, saw this basket, and she watched it along the way, and then it just so happens God worked it out where Pharaoh's own daughter was pro-life, and she saw this basket, and she opens it up, and she sees Moses, and she draws him out of the water. In fact, that's what the name Moses means, drawn out. She drew him out of the Nile River. She brought him into her family and raised him as the prince of all of Egypt. So where would it be if Moses' parents were pro-death, and they had just thrown him into the alligator-infested waters of the Nile? When Mary and Joseph made their way to Bethlehem and Jesus was born, King Herod, who was pro-death, looked for an opportunity to kill Jesus and ordered all males under two years of age to be killed. Mary and Joseph, who are pro-life, flee to Egypt to spare the life of their son. So you see, when you look at Queen Athaliah, what do you see about her? She's not pro-life, she's pro-death. And she has all of the family of David exterminated to attack the promised seed all the way back in Genesis 3, to thwart the line of King David from, from having an eternal king, and then also to discredit God who would not be able to keep a promise that he made. So that is the promise threatened. But secondly, very quickly, I want you to look at the promise. God's promise was steadfast. Notice verse 2. But Jehoiashib the daughter of King, of King Joram, uh, sister of Ahaziah, took Joash. All right, here's another new character, Joash. And uh, Jehoshaphat is his aunt. She takes Joash, the son of Ahaziah. She stole him from among the king's sons that were killed. She hid him and his nurse in the bedchamber from Athaliah so that he was not killed. And he was with her hid in the house of the Lord for six years. And Athaliah did reign over the land. So Joash, Athaliah's grandson, is barely a year old when Athaliah orders all the children be, be killed and all the descendants of David be killed. Well, as, a, as just a year old, Joash, by the way, you know what his name means? His name means given from God. Isn't that a great name? A gift from God. Right here in a culture of death, when all of the royal family was annihilated, and those who were in charge cared very little about human life, and they say, kill the royal seed, in steps this woman, his aunt, Joash's aunt. And she takes this little one-year-old baby, totally helpless, totally defenseless, Completely innocent in every way, can't care for himself, can't feed himself, can't comfort himself, can't do anything for himself, totally dependent upon adults to care for him. She takes this one-year-old little boy, Joash, her nephew, and she hides him. Now listen carefully, because I'm going somewhere with this. Joash is the only remaining descendant of King David. All of the others had been killed. And if God was ever going to keep his promise of an eternal king with an eternal kingdom, it would have to come through this little boy, Joash. And now he is the last remaining descendant 
of King David. And I am so thankful that his aunt, Jeho- Je- what is her name again in verse number uh, two? Uh, Jehoshaphat. She was pro-life. And she took this little baby. And the Bible says she hides him in the temple for six years. Now listen, she, in my estimation, is an unsung hero in the Bible. You hear nothing about her. This is the only time she's mentioned outside the passage in Chronicles that gives us the parallel account of this. She's not well known like Deborah or Esther. She's very obscure. But what did she do in an act of courage when she saved Joash's life? Now listen. In reality, she preserved the lineage of King David so that it would continue on and on and on until a little baby named Jesus would be born in Bethlehem's manger. Aren't you glad that this woman was pro-life and preserved the life of little Joash and for six years hid him in the temple? Listen to what King Solomon says about that when we talk about life and preserving life. King Solomon says in Proverbs 24, Deliver those who are drawn toward death and hold back those who are tumbling, stumbling toward slaughter. If you say, surely we did not know this, does he who weighs the hearts consider it? He who keeps your soul, does he not know it? And will he not render to each man according to his deeds? I'm glad that this aunt of Joash drew this little boy who was destined to be killed And she protected him and she preserved his life. The right to life, listen church, is not a political issue. It is a biblical issue. The right for every little baby to have an opportunity to live and to be everything that God created them to be The right to that person's life should never be determined by a politician who would say or do pretty much anything to get elected when God has already spoken on the issue and every little child is precious in the sight of God. It is not political. It is biblical. It is spiritual. Listen, I love everybody because God loves everybody I may not like everybody no I do I like and love everybody I love everybody I love little babies and little children and I love babies who have been aborted I love mothers who have who have gone through that and walked that journey who may have felt like they didn't have a better option my heart breaks for them and I love them and I love fathers who have put, in, put uh, women in that position and maybe they didn't know what to do and they, they did the, what they thought was the best at the time. I want you to know that I love you and more importantly, God loves you. And if you're listening online or watching online or by television, I want you to know that, that God doesn't fail to love you because we make decisions that are not best sometimes. But I say all that to say God has called me and God has compelled me to tell you and to tell others what he has to say about the issue of the right to life. And his issue with the right to life is that God always comes down on the side of life. Always comes down. Listen, the view will never tell you that you are fearfully and wonderfully made. Social media influencers 
They will never tell you that God has a beautiful design for your life and that you were created in the image of God and that you have the Imago Dei, the image of God imprinted upon your life. They will never tell you that. But if you read the Word of God, you will read those words from the psalmist that you are fearfully and wonderfully made. You'll read the words of Jeremiah. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I set you apart. Psalms 22 says, From birth I was cast on you, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Whatever politicians say, whatever Planned Parenthood says, whatever our president says, whatever media says, whatever culture says, I'm here to tell you, that God has always been pro-life and He will always be pro-life. And I want to be on God's side. But that's not the culture in which we live. Athaliah was pro-death. And she wanted to exterminate the godly line that would come through King David. And she was determined because, listen, she knew, perhaps, through the influence of the evil one, maybe she didn't know all of this that was going to take place, but through the influence of the evil one, she knew that there would be this lineage of David who would come until one day an angel named Gabriel would speak to a virgin named Mary and he would say to her, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son and he will be called Jesus. He will be great and called the son of the highest and the Lord will give him the throne of his father David. Now listen, and he will reign forever and ever and ever. So Athaliah was trying to stop that before it ever got started. And though it has seemed as though God's promises were thwarted, in reality, they were steadfast. And because it was steadfast, I want you to look at how his promises were realized. This is an amazing story. Let me just read it for you very quickly, verse 4. In the seventh year, Jehoiada sent... And fetched the rulers of hundreds with the companies of the guards and brought them, to, brought them to him in the house of the Lord and made a covenant with them and took an oath with them in the house of the Lord and showed them the king's son. This is Joash. Fast forward in your mind seven, six years. This little baby is now a seven-year-old little boy. What would that put him? Second grade? Something like that nowadays. So he's seven years old. He has been hiding for the last six years of his life in the temple. And now comes a day when they're going to publicly coronate him as the rightful heir to his dad who had passed. And he would take the throne from this wicked queen, Athaliah. And remember what I told you, he is the last living descendant of King David. Athaliah thinks he's dead. She thinks all of them are dead. Notice verse 5. He commands them, saying, This is the thing that you will do. A third part of you enter in on the Sabbath, and you shall be the keepers of the watch of the king's house. A third part shall be at the gate of sure, and a third part at the gate behind the guard. So shall you keep watch over the house, that it be not broken down. Two parts of you that go forth on the Sabbath, even they shall keep watch in the house of the Lord about the king. And you will compass the king round about, every man with his weapons in his hand, and you will come within the ranges uh, let him be slain, and you be with the king as he goes out and as he comes in. In other words, we're going to surround this little seven-year-old boy. 
And the captains over the hundreds did according to all the things that Jehoiada the priest commanded them. And they took every man his men that were to come on the Sabbath with them that should go out on the Sabbath. And they came to Jehoiada the priest and to the captains over the hundreds. And the priests, look what they did. They gave King David's spears. This is the late King David now. Because now his rightful heir is going to be on the throne. They gave him spears and shields that were in the temple of David. And the guard stood every man with his weapons in his hands round about the king. And from the right corner of the temple to the left corner of the temple along the altar of the temple. In other words, they just line up and they surround Joash, the seven-year-old boy who's been in hiding for the last six years. This boy whom Athaliah knows is dead, or at least she believes that. And look what happens, verse 12. And he brought forth the king's son, put a crown on him, gave him the testimony, meaning they put the the Old Testament in his hands. They made him king, they anointed him, they clapped their hands, and they said, God save the king. So can't you get this picture in your mind? With Queen Athaliah reigning on the throne, the daughter of Ahab and Jezebel, doing everything that she can to turn the nation of Judah, the southern kingdom, away from God, exterminating all of David's family, but because of Joash's aunt, Joash, the only remaining descendant of David's life is preserved. She brings him out, surrounded by the guards. He's got the Old Testament in his hand. They put a crown on his head. This little seven-year-old boy, probably so big it kind of falls down over his eyes, and he's looking underneath it like this, and they're clapping their hands. And they are shouting, saying, God save the king. Meaning that God is faithful to keep his promises and that he's going to get this ungodly Athaliah off the throne and he's going to put the rightful heir to the throne, another descendant of David, Joash, listen, who would reign for 40 years, beginning at seven years old. He would reign for 40 years and be the next king of Israel. Athaliah is not going to take that lying down. Look what she does. Go down to verse 14. When she looked and behold the king by the pillar as the manor was, and the princess and the trumpeteers by the king, and all the people of the land rejoice and blew trumpets, Athaliah tore her clothes and she said, treason, treason. Can't you just see that? Verse 20 says that she is taken on a death march and she is put to death. And Joash becomes king. Athaliah tried her best to wipe out the seed of David. And years earlier, King Herod tried to do the exact same thing when he ordered the death of all the male babies. We call that the slaughter of the innocents of Bethlehem. When Jesus became an adult, King Herod continued to try to destroy him. And by the way, listen carefully, the Lord Jesus would be the last descendant of King David. And the only begotten, the only descendant of God the Father. And King Herod would try his best to make sure that Jesus would never be the king. And that there would not be someone from the line of King David on the throne. So, the Bible says the night that Jesus was arrested, that he went through a series of six trials in one night. Three of them were religious and three of them were civil. He comes to Annas, 
who was the previous high priest. Then he goes to Caiaphas for his second trial, who was the reigning high priest. Then he goes to the Sanhedrin, who were the religious uh, ruling class of people. And all three declared that he was guilty of blasphemy. Then he goes to the Roman, the civil trial, and he goes from Pontius Pilate to King Herod. Neither of them wanted anything to do with him, and Herod sends him back to Pilate. He has three Jewish trials and three Roman trials in one night. And then finally, Pilate decides he doesn't want to have anything to do with him, and he's trying to absolve himself of the guilt. He washes his hands in a basin of water. He says, I find no fault in this man. And he says, tradition says, I can let one criminal go free. You tell me who you want, Barabbas or Jesus? And in an act of ultimate betrayal, the Bible says Jesus came to his own and his own received him not. And rather than freeing Jesus, the crowd cried out, free Barabbas, but crucify Jesus. They took him and they put a crown on his head, not of jewels, but of thorns. They drug him down the Via Dolorosa, up to the hill called Mount Calvary. And right there on Calvary's cross, the last descendant of King David, his lifeless body would be hanging on the throne. But Pastor Darrell, I thought it would be an eternal reign. I thought he'd be an eternal king, and that's what the world thought. And there he was, his lifeless body hanging on the cross, and it appeared as though nothing had changed. Caiaphas was still the high priest. Pilate was still the governor. Herod was still the king. The devil was still in control. Jesus was still dead, and they took his body off the cross, and they put him in a tomb and rolled a stone over that tomb. And it looked like things couldn't get worse. An earthquake shook the ground. The sun was turned dark. The veil in the temple was torn from top to bottom by the hand of God. And it was a day unlike anything the world had ever experienced when the last remaining descendant of David, Jesus Christ, was killed. They came all the way through David, through Joash, and then ultimately through Mary to become the Lord Jesus Christ. And it looked like it could not get worse. And that was on Crucifixion Friday. But I want you to know, on Resurrection Sunday, that there was an angel dispatched from heaven to come and to roll the stone away. And the one whom the devil was sure was dead... The one whom the devil was sure was defeated and that the lion had been exterminated. I want you to know he stepped out of that tomb as the risen, living, resurrected Savior declaring, because I live, you shall live also. And through the Lord Jesus, yes. And through the Lord Jesus Christ, God kept his promise of an eternal king who would reign on a throne forever and forever and forever and forever. You say, Pastor Darrell, it didn't happen, did it? Oh, yeah, listen. Now listen carefully. It ain't over yet. One of these days, the Lord Jesus is coming. You see, when he came, the first time he came as a baby, the Prince of Peace, to offer peace, to offer forgiveness. You know how you'll see him come the next time? The next time he comes... He'll be crowned with a royal diadem. He will come as the righteous judge of this universe. Listen, he is the lion of the tribe of what? 
southern kingdom, Israel as, I mean, Jerusalem as its capital, and he will thwart the plans of Athaliah, thwart the plans of Pharaoh, thwart the plans of King Herod, of Pilate, of everybody else, and he will step into that capital city of Jerusalem and sit down on his throne, and he will rule this world with a rod of iron for a thousand glorious years. Praise God, because God always keeps his promises. Amen, church? Always. Let me give you three quick applications, and we're going to close. Revival comes in our lives, personally, and as a church family, when we follow God. Joe Ash, very quickly, reigned for 40 years. He instituted a system where people would refurbish the temple after it was 150 years old, fell in disrepair. He built a chest, put a hole in the top of it, and asked people just to give as God moved their hearts. We've been using that for the last several of years for our own building program here. We don't pressure. We just say, you do what God wants you to do. That's what Joash did. And the Bible says there was so much given that they had to come back and say, stop, don't give any more. There's too much. Now, we're not to that point yet. But anyway, anyway, don't get any ideas. But anyway, that's where we get this from, all right? Joash allowed revival to come for this, for this first part of his reign, all right, because he followed God. Secondly, not only does revival come when we follow God, but secondly, determine in your heart, purpose in your heart to finish well. What is more sad than to see a professional athlete, for example, who has so much promise, so much potential, so much talent and ability, and they start out well, but then they make a terrible decision, maybe drug abuse or something like that, and they forfeit the career and they waste their talent because they didn't finish well. Practically every week, I read more articles about another pastor or another Christian artist that has fallen. Some will be restored. Some may never be restored. Make it your life's goal to finish your life well and make your life matter for God. And then finally, fully depend on God's promises. It looked bleak in the days of Athaliah, but God's promises were true. It looked bleak in the days of Jesus, but God's promises were true. It may look bleak in your life right now, but listen, I just want you to know you can always trust this word and you can always trust God. And his promises are to you. And his truth, you can bank your whole eternity on his truth. Let's pray. Lord, I recognize this sermon is not the easiest sermon in the world for folk to track in their hearing. There's a lot of names, a lot of movement, a lot of change. But God, it is your word, and um, you tell us that your word never returns void. So I pray, Lord, through my attempts this morning at sharing the very complex passage of Scripture, that you would open the eyes of each of us and help us to see what you have for us through this today. Thank you that you're a God as faithful to keep your promises, that you never disappoint, you never fail to come through. You're the same yesterday, today, and forever. And now as we have this time of invitation, there are folk who may need to make decisions here. And if there's one today that has never made their decision for Jesus, I pray, God, they would do just like Carter did today and come and say, yes, I want to be saved. Maybe others who want to come and unite with our church family like another couple we had this morning I pray they would come. Or others who just want to come and pray, take this invitation, use it, God, in a way that will glorify you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.